So, do you ever notice how things come in clusters? They kind of come in groups. Historically, things are said to come in threes, and I'm not superstitious. Well, at least not that I'll admit, but I think it's kind of true. Just this last week when I was on call, things came in twos. Yeah, we're missing one. Maybe it came this weekend when I was off call. But two separate patients with two very similar issues came to our attention. So this is a shout out to Dr. Blake Casey, one of our upper level residents, who earlier in the week said, hey, Dr. Chapa, I just had a quick question. Listen, one of my patients called. She's got this kind of crampy, kind of loose stool, some diarrhea. Uh, and she was kind of concerned because a few days prior, she had eaten some sandwich meat, some lunch meat. And so, I mean, should I really be concerned about that? Well, flags went up right away because, of course, that is a red flag, a warning for possible listeriosis that could be, well, very dangerous for, in pregnancy. Well, then fast forward a couple of days later, and Blake and I are in the resident clinic. Well, Blake calls me and says, you're never going to believe this. Well, there's a separate patient who went to labor and delivery and was assessed and turns out was not in labor and was sent home. But while she was there, she asked for something to eat. So the nurse, meaning very well, brought her a cold cut sandwich. And no, the meat had not been warmed. Well, does that matter? Well, it does, because that same patient then developed nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. So not only did we trigger a phone call to labor and delivery to please not give our pregnant patients who are antepartum some deli meat unless it's been heated, but it also triggered this discussion of, well, how do we work up OB suspected listeriosis? So in this episode, we're going to do a very easy review and we're going to tell you this algorithm that you won't forget because it really boils down to three very simple questions. One, did you have a listeriosis possible exposure? Second, are you symptomatic? And number three, do those symptoms include fever? That's it. That management, that workup depends on how we answer those three separate questions. Ready? Let's cover listeriosis and pregnancy. What are the potential adverse effects of this condition while pregnant? What's the workup? What's the algorithm? And above all that, how can we prevent this possibly very dangerous condition? Let's get started right now. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves fast. This is Clinical Pearls. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACOG first released a committee opinion on listeriosis monocytogenes during pregnancy back in 2014. In 2014, there'd actually been this big concern because a lot of food items were considered possibly contaminated with this bacteria. So in 2014, ACOG released the committee opinion number 614 addressing this issue. It's kind of strange that you would think we'd have one before this, but we actually didn't. This was the first set of guidelines released by the college on Listeria monocytogenes. 
Listeriosis is the condition of being infected with Listeria monocytogenes. This is predominantly a foodborne illness with sporadic and outbreak-related cases tied to consumption of food contaminated with this bacteria, Listeria. Listeria is an aerobic and facultative anaerobic gram-positive bacillus that is found readily in the environment. Invasive listeriosis is defined as isolation of the bacteria from a normally sterile site, typically like blood or even cerebral spinal fluid. But the condition is actually pretty uncommon. However, in people who are immunocompromised or pregnant, it can be a really devastating condition. Specifically, the three groups of individuals that are more at risk of this condition are pregnant individuals, the elderly, and as we've just mentioned, anybody who's immunocompromised and, well, just not in good health. Now, for most individuals who aren't in one of those categories, if you get exposed to listeria, the truth is the large percentage of people are asymptomatic. I mean, you may not even know that you've consumed it, or you may have very mild kind of GI distress, maybe a little bit of loose poop, a little bit, of, a little bit of diarrhea, and then it's self-limited, and that's it. However, the issue is during pregnancy, it can be quite bad, not just for the mom because of the GI symptoms, but specifically for the fetus. So we're going to get into the fetal complications here in just a minute, but here's a clinical pearl. The incidence of listeriosis after exposure, okay, so you have a pregnant woman, she gets exposed to listeria by eating something that's contaminated with it, it's about 20 times higher than the general population. Now, it depends on who you read. There's a couple of sites that say 13 times higher. Uh, there's one from the CDC that says 20 times higher. But it doesn't matter. 13 times higher is high enough. 20 times is even worse. So that's the issue here. So remember, when you have that new OB patient in that intake visit, I know we got so many things to do at that first visit. We got to cover their medical history, their OB history, their gin history, whether they smoke, drink, blah, 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 family history, the whole thing. But it's very important during either that initial intake visit or at least the second visit to go over healthy lifestyles with these patients. And that includes what foods to avoid because it's something we really don't think about. I mean, let's be honest. We're all focused on high blood pressure and chronic hypertension and pregnancy and diabetes and growth restriction. And that's those are all great things. But we kind of tend to put the kind of the routine, the daily things, the things that she's going to see every day off to the side because there are some very important items that are not recommended for pregnancy. So let's cover those here as a way to prevent this condition. The following foods have a high risk of contamination with listeria. Now, let's talk everyone off the ledge first, okay? So if a woman eats one of these issues and she's pregnant, one of these food items, it's all right, relax, relax, because remember, the vast majority of the time, they're going to be asymptomatic. It's not going to be an issue. So we're going to go through our three boxes here. Remember that workup, that algorithm of asymptomatic or symptomatic without fever or fever with or without GI issues. And those are the three boxes that we need to worry about after exposure. So a woman is exposed. She may be asymptomatic. She may just have mild GI or flu-like uh, symptoms without fever, or she may have fever. The big clinical pearl here is that after exposure, possible exposure to listeria, the big issue is whether or not she has fever. 
But I'm going to talk about that a little bit further down in the podcast. So right now, I just want to focus on the food types. But I do want to just relax everyone, especially our patients, that if they eat it, it's going to be all right. It's just an idea to keep their eye out for potential symptoms. And yet, here's another clinical pearl. Symptoms may not happen quickly. Unlike viral gastroenteritis, where you eat something and then about eight to 12 hours or so, you get, you know, loose poop, you feel kind of weird, and then it goes away in 24 hours. That's viral. This issue with this type of bacterial infection, symptoms may not happen for days or up to about two months after exposure. That's why it's important to go through these food items at the initial intake because no one's going to remember what they ate two months ago. But if we head that off before it happens, that's how we can win against this condition. All right, so back to the list of foods. Pregnant women should be counseled to avoid the following food items. First on the list are hot dogs, lunch meats, cold cuts, but that's when they're served at room temperature or chilled. And they can eat all those items. It's totally okay as long as they heat it to an internal temperature first of at least 165 degrees Fahrenheit or until it's steaming hot because no one's going to really put a little thermometer in there. I mean, even though they should. If it's steaming hot, then that's okay. But remember, hot dogs, lunch meats, or cold cuts that are served cold, if they're not preheated, that's a no-go. Pregnant patients are also advised to avoid refrigerated pate and meat spreads, refrigerated smoked seafood items, and avoid raw unpasteurized milk, unpasteurized soft cheeses like feta, queso blanco, queso fresco, brie, queso panela, all of those things are no-go because it's unpasteurized source. Patients should also be reminded not to eat unwashed raw produce like fruits or vegetables. And when eating raw fruits and vegetables, the skin should be washed thoroughly in running tap water, even if it will be peeled or cut. Now look, I let me give a little disclosure here. When I'm at the store, I do like to pluck some grapes and then eat it just like that. I know that's kind of gross. You're not supposed to do that. Um, but I do. All right, podcast family, before we get into the specific workup and management, a quick word about the sequelae of this condition. I mean, does that matter? Is it just a little bit of poop and that's it? Well, no, it's much more complex than that. Nearly all pregnancy-associated cases of listeriosis occur in otherwise healthy women with no additional predisposing risk factors. So being pregnant alone is the risk factor for this and getting out of hand. Although listeriosis has been diagnosed mainly in the third trimester, the incidence at earlier gestational ages may be underreported because of the relative infrequency of culturing products of conception in cases of early fetal loss. But that's a clinical pearl. Yes, listeriosis can cause early pregnancy loss, and we're going to get into the adverse fetal issues in just a minute. Now, the good news is if a woman is exposed, if they've eaten one of these contaminated food sources, the majority of the time they will be asymptomatic. So that is reassuring. 
However, when it is symptomatic, infection generally presents as a nonspecific flu-like illness with myalgias, maybe some backache, headache, and this is often preceded by diarrhea or other gastrointestinal symptoms. All right, so watch the timeline. You eat some uh, hot dogs and you're pregnant and you didn't heat it up. A couple of days goes by, you get a little bit of diarrhea, some little bit of nausea. Then comes the myalgia, the backache, and the fever. So they're not all together, okay? All of those systemic symptoms are preceded by the GI ones. That's why this thing is kind of complicated. It's so much easier to just try to prevent it by telling women what not to eat than trying to figure this out because, I mean, pregnant women get diarrhea, right? I mean, they're human. It's just the stuff that happens. But having to trace it back to a possible listeriosis issue is where it gets complicated. But we've got to be vigilant because fetal and neonatal infections can be severe. They can result in fetal loss, preterm labor, neonatal sepsis, meningitis, and even neonatal death. Yeah, it can cause stillbirth. That's terrifying. Here's a clinical pearl that you really should not forget because this is how serious this thing can potentially be. About one in five pregnancies that's complicated by listeriosis. Again, this is the actual sickness condition, okay, guys? Not the asymptomatic. So don't worry. If, if they're asymptomatic, you're in the clear. But if they're symptomatic, especially with fever, which signifies bacteremia, and we'll talk about that in a minute, then one in five of those pregnancies can actually have either a spontaneous abortion early in pregnancy or a stillbirth, one in five. That's horrifying. Approximately two-thirds of surviving infants can develop clinical neonatal listeriosis. You see, since exposure could take days to have symptoms, isn't it just easier to tell women, don't eat these things? And I think it should be part of just kind of prenatal care. Hey, how are you doing? Is baby moving? No leakage of fluid, no vag bleed. You're taking your aspirin, if that's the case. You're taking your meds or whatever. Hey, are you remembering not to eat things that you shouldn't eat? It's super important. I advise you to do that. I think we're going to start doing that much more heavily with our resident clinic. All right, let's get ready to wrap this up. So remember, somebody comes in and says, hey, I ate a bunch of hot dogs. They weren't heated up uh, and I'm pregnant. All right, no worries. The majority of the time, you're going to be all right. But let's place you in one of three boxes. Now, here's the catch. Now, they're going to tell you, if they tell you that quickly after they ate it, go, thank you for letting me know. It's fine. But you're, you're not out of the clear yet. Technically, it could be two months until symptoms happen. But we're going to end up, you're going to end up in one of these three different boxes, okay? So the first is totally asymptomatic. And if they're asymptomatic, don't worry about it. No testing is needed. I'm going to go into a little bit more detail in just a minute. The second box is mildly symptomatic, like some GI issues, but they're afebrile. And then the third box are those who had an exposure and are febrile with or without any other symptoms because fever by itself is the bad marker, all right? So we have asymptomatic, mildly symptomatic, but afebrile, and then fever following an exposure with or without other symptoms. So let's tackle the asymptomatic patient first. In the patient who's had a possible exposure by eating some of the forbidden food items, but they're asymptomatic, then no testing is needed. 
This includes blood or stool cultures. Don't don't get anything. Nor is treatment indicated for somebody who's asymptomatic because, well, they're asymptomatic. An asymptomatic patient should be, however, instructed to return if she develops any symptoms of the condition within two months of eating either a recalled or a forbidden food item. Two months because that's the latency of this bacteria. There is no reason to alter or begin fetal surveillance in asymptomatic women with known or presumptive exposure to listeria. Next, let's move on to the mildly symptomatic patient, but without fever. Now, in this case, there's actually no good data to guide management here, and most would not order testing, although getting it is very conservative, and I do recommend that. I think it's a good idea, but testing is plus or minus. A pregnant woman who ate a product that was either recalled or is on the no-eat list, but who is afebrile but has signs and symptoms consistent with a minor GI or flu-like illness, and this can include things like mild myalgias, mild nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea, or any combo of those except for fever. But these patients can be managed expectantly. In other words, we can treat them the same as for an exposed patient who's asymptomatic. Well, isn't that bad? I mean, they're symptomatic. Yeah, but they're afebrile, and being febrile signifies, or at least as a red flag, for increased bacteria counts in the blood, and that's what affects the child. So if you don't have fever, it's all right. Again, expected management can be done. However, it's very, very conservative, and it's allowed to go ahead and, if you'd like, and the patient accepts, to get a blood culture to look for listeria just to be sure. However, if you're going to do that, you need to tell the lab what you're looking for because listeria can be hard to identify, so they need to know what you're looking for. Now, if you do order blood cultures and if you do identify listeria, well, of course, those patients need traditional treatment, like if they had fever. And traditional treatment, which we're going to talk about in this last category, is intravenous ampicillin. That's the standard, okay? So if they get blood cultures and so they had a little bit of symptoms after exposure but no fever, you elect to get the blood cultures, which is what I prefer to do, just to be sure, because again, listeria just it wigs me out. It's dangerous in pregnancy. And if you identify it on blood culture, you've got to go ahead and start IV AMP. Now, the question is, do these patients also need antepartum surveillance? Well, the only category of patient where that's a definite yes are those who have fever. Assessment of fetal well-being in the mildly symptomatic but afebrile category is, quote, individualized, end quote, according to the college. For me personally, if you're if we're worried enough to give you IV antibiotics, absolutely. I think it's a good idea to do antepartum fetal surveillance at 28 to 32 weeks initiation. Now, here's a quick word about stool cultures. We talked about blood cultures. That's the gold standard for listeria identification. But if you order stool cultures, which is okay, you're not actually ordering it for listeria. You're ordering it for any other bacteria, including C. diff, so that if you identify something else, we can not stress out so much about listeria. So if you're going to get stool cultures, it's okay. It's not the most standard, but it's fine to get as conservative care. But you're not looking for listeria in the stool. You're looking for ova, parasites, C. difficile, other pathogens that can help explain the symptoms. 
Okay, now that we're at the end, let's tackle the last category, which is the most worrisome. Those are the patients with a possible exposure to listeria and are febrile. An exposed pregnant woman with a high fever defined as anything above 38 degrees or 100.4 and signs and symptoms consistent with listeriosis for whom there's no other cause of illness should be simultaneously tested and treated for presumptive listeriosis. The diagnosis that we've already talked about is made primarily by blood culture. Placental cultures can also be obtained in the event of delivery. If blood cultures are negative after the recommended antibiotic regimen has begun, then a decision about whether or not to continue antibiotics should be made using clinical judgment combined with the help of an ID physician. To be honest, if I start antibiotics and the blood cultures are negative, I'm still going to finish once again because the risk there is very low and the yield could be very high. The antimicrobial regimen for this condition, as we've already alluded to, is high-dose intravenous ampicillin. That's a total of about 6 grams per 24 hours per day. Now, that's carried out for at least 14 days. Sometimes gentamicin is added to the treatment regimen because it's also demonstrated some synergy with ampicillin. But not everybody agrees that gentamicin is 100% necessary. Also, taking gent, well, how long are you going to keep it on? Because you're not going to use it for 14 days because of the theoretical concerns for fetal toxicity. Now, here's another clinical pearl. In these patients who've had exposure and then develop fever with or without other symptoms, these are the patients that require fetal surveillance from the time of diagnosis or if it's early on, then initiation as early as 28, but the usual is about 32 weeks to begin fetal surveillance because of this condition. Okay, podcast family, everybody good? So you've had an exposure, put patients into one of three boxes, totally asymptomatic. But remember, asymptomatic has to go all the way until about 60 days after exposure because of the latency of this bacteria. But there's asymptomatic and then there's mildly symptomatic without fever. And then the third category is fever with or without other GI symptoms after possible exposure. Well, that brings us to a wrap. Yep, in one week, same resident, two different patients, both exposed potentially to a foodborne pathogen and then develop some GI issues. Now, in both of these patients, they were not febrile, okay? But we erred on the side of caution and sent them for stool cultures. We got blood cultures, and we're going to wait those results. And yes, I did give them a course of oral antibiotics, oral amoxicillin, just to be safe. Remember, the standard for fever is IV AMP. But in mild cases, there is some some wiggle room because it is sensitive to penicillins uh, and penicillin-related uh, family. So we did give them amoxicillin. But again, the big issue is whether they're febrile or not. Well, podcast family, I hope you found that helpful. We've covered OB listeriosis. And as a good reminder to tell patients, don't eat these things at the first second, third, and reminders all throughout prenatal care so that we can just avoid this issue if possible. As always, we're thankful for you and we'll see you next time on another episode of Clinical Pearls.